Acts 4, 23 to 37. Luke writes, on their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father, David. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. And all the believers were one heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money to, from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. This, too, is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, I've titled this sermon, Freed freedom to give. Um, and I think it's pretty clear based on, you know, some of the songs we were singing as well as what this passage says where I'm going. But let's walk through this passage together and see uh, what we can learn together. So here in the in the first section uh, is a continuation from the story we've been telling this whole time, right? Peter and John come back after being arrested, after standing up before the Sanhedrin to sort of report you know, what's going on? What happened to them? And, and their report is, is basically we see the people saw the oppression, saw the arrest, and, and the people come back together and pray this prayer, quoting Psalm 2, right? Um, talking about how the people are conspiring against the Lord's anointed one. You can read all of Psalm 2 later. And, and they say this prayer, praising God essentially for his goodness, and then asking God to continue the work being done in the name of Jesus. And again, we've seen this multiple times, um, but I just want to point this out. You know, in the first couple of chapters of Acts, it's kind of amazing how often the apostles are quoting the Psalms with Jesus as the fulfillment of them, right? And this is a good thing for us to remember, and I could say it every single week, and it would continue to be a good thing for us to remember, that Jesus is indeed the fulfillment of these things in the Old Testament, right? And this is just further evidence uh, of Jesus's holiness, of Jesus's anointedness from God. And so they say this prayer, and the leaders, as we've seen recently, are opposed to Jesus. And it has, of course, shown, first with Jesus himself and his arrest and his death. And now we see it with his followers being arrested. 
and the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the temple guard wondering what to do with these Jesus followers now. Before they wondered what to do with Jesus, now they wonder, what will we do with his followers? And so they say to God in their prayers here in this first section, therefore, Lord, see this. See that, or that Psalm 2 is being fulfilled and consider us, your servants. They ask God, they say, God, allow us to perform great signs and to speak with great boldness. And it says the place where they were was shaken. They were all filled with the spirit and spoke with boldness, with a bold unity together. You know, just as a reminder, if you wanted to make a note of it, this also happens. The the exact same thing happens in Psalm 138. David asked God for a boldness to speak. And God sends the Holy Spirit to King David to give him a boldness of soul, the scriptures say. And so this, again, is constant. This, again, is, is nothing new to God. God emboldening his people to speak truth. And as a clarification here, some people have wondered, is this like a second coming of the Holy Spirit? Is this something different? I don't think so. I think when I read this, this is just sort of God giving them that reassurance yet again. Um, It's like if you've ever had a powerful experience in worship or a powerful experience where you felt the power of the Holy Spirit. You know, we might say that we had a powerful prayer meeting and and the Holy Spirit came upon us. Um, I think this is sort of the language and, and that they're talking about. It wasn't that the Holy Spirit came a second time to the believers. The Holy Spirit was there. The Holy Spirit is there for all believers. I think what they're saying here at the end of, at the end of Acts chapter four is that as they prayed, they felt the great power of the Spirit and they felt emboldened to preach the truth like Peter and John had the day before in front of the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees. And 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 as we know, oftentimes when we have these experiences, it's felt by all, right? You can have a powerful service or worship time or a retreat or something like that, where multiple people feel the very presence of God. And this is what we want, I think, as a church, right? This is what we want as Christians. You know, we talked about this last week. We want to stand with boldness against opposition. We want to be strong. We want to feel the very power of God in us, that we would stand for the things that we believe. Not only because when we do these things, it actually fulfills the scriptures, right? That we would preach truth, that we would continue the message of Jesus. But also because of what happens next in our text tonight. See, when we do these things, when we pray together, when we meet, when we encounter the Holy Spirit together in worship or or in other ways, what happened to the disciples here at the end of Acts chapter 4 is also something that we should be desiring. That boldness of God that comes from the Holy Spirit, I believe, flows then into unity and togetherness as people. See, people often read the end of Acts chapter 4 and sort of wonder, how could they do this? How could, how could the people be so generous in giving and, and, and this radical giving in Acts chapter 4? How, how could they do this? Well, church, we have to read it in context. Acts chapter 4 is all about the people standing for truth and coming together in the power of the Holy Spirit under the teachings of Jesus with him as the fulfillment of all the Old Testament scriptures and the Holy Spirit emboldening them to do these things and live this way. So then, the outpouring is this radical unity we see in Acts chapter 4. 
Isn't that amazing? And we look at the end of Acts chapter 4, and you see verse 32, 33, 34, 35, and it's very similar to the end of Acts chapter 2. After Pentecost, when they had this wonderful experience together, it talks about how generous they were with one another. And now we see that when the people come together and worship through the power of the Spirit, that they are freed to give. They are free to share. They are free to to meet each other's needs with the things that they have and give from what God has given them so that they might be unified together. And, and, And this, verses 32 to 35, is pretty radical giving, isn't it? I mean, we read this and we really think. I mentioned this before with Acts 2. Do we, re- do we have to do this? <laughs> now, let me give also some context. Let's remember what's happening here. Okay? In, in some ways, this was probably needed. These followers of Jesus are growing in number, right? Last, last told in the last chapter, it says there's about 5,000 now in Jerusalem or the Jerusalem area. And for example, consider the better, the beggar, excuse me, who was just healed. Right. He probably needed some help. He probably needed some place to live. He probably needed to get up on his feet somehow. <laughs> no pun intended. He probably needed to get a job. And, and so we think about the church and how it's growing. I mean, remember at Pentecost, what happened? 3000 people came to Christ. Now, maybe some of them went home to where they came from. But I can imagine that some of them probably stayed to learn from the apostles. And so now we maybe have refugees or people who at least have chosen to live in Jerusalem, looking for places to stay. And so as the church is growing, just practically think about the needs were rising, right? And so we can assume that there were lots of needs. And actually, we'll see this very clearly two chapters from now in Acts chapter 6, when it talks about food distribution to widows. It's actually how deacons were first started, but we'll get to that. So practically, there would have been a lot of need. There are lots of things to figure out here in Jerusalem. And this is one of the ways they did it. But for us today, when we read this passage, it's pretty extreme. I mean, I heard one guy actually just recently in a podcast, uh, a pastor who I really like, say this is sort of the most like leftist communist passage in the Bible. You know, it's like, well, everyone just shared everything and they're... Everyone just gave whatever they had, but, you know, and, and, and people sometimes don't know what to do with this. Um, and because now, what do we have to do? We sit here 2,000 years later, and most of us in Zurich, Switzerland, and we think, so what does this mean for me, right? Like, let's just call it what it is. We wonder, how much do I have to give, <laughs> right? Anyone else sort of, like, uh, how, how much does this mean I have to give? How much of my things, how much of my money, how much of my whatever. So let's just acknowledge this right now. Um, Talking about money can be awkward, can it? Um, Talking about money in church is sort of goofy. Um, You know, is the pastor going to ask me to give more? Is the pastor going to say the Bible's telling you to give more money? Um, We don't like talking about money. And I've actually found that even in Switzerland, it's more awkward here than it was in the U.S. where I come from. People here are so private about financial things, they just don't want to talk about it, right? Um, But you know what? We're going to talk about it. Uh, We're going to discuss this because it's very clear, one, it's in scripture, but it's important that you and I not be afraid of talking about money. It is important that Christians understand that when it comes to money or resources or material goods, that when we are afraid to talk about these things because it might make us uncomfortable, It gives those things power. 
And they don't have power. Money has no power over us. But when we're afraid to talk about it or we avoid it, it gives it power that it doesn't have. So we're going to talk about it right now, okay? So what does the Bible actually say about giving and tithing? Well, look to our Old Testament passage that, that Ian read. This is actually one of the first mentions of it in the Old Testament. This is before the law now, remember. Jacob has this dream and this vision, and his response to God is that, God, if we walk together like my, you know, my father Abraham or my grandfather Abraham, uh, I will give you a tenth. I will give back a tenth of everything that you give to me. And then we know that as the Old Testament and the story of the descendants of Abraham carry on, that this actually becomes part of the law, right? That this becomes in, in Deuteronomy and Leviticus, that God commands that a tenth go to the church and to the Levites, and that there's all these other rules that also come in to giving with the Old Testament, right? There is rules about helping people, rules about, you know, not doing the edges of your fields. There's rules about the year of Jubilee. But essentially, the Old Testament, we all know, says that a tenth of the income, a tenth of everything you have should go to God, give or take, right? What does Jesus say about tithing? Um, some people, I mean, we know Jesus said he came to fulfill the law, but some, some people don't really realize Jesus never really talks about tithing directly. He does one time. He does one time in Matthew 23. And I'm just going to read it for you. You can look it up later. It's in Matthew 23. But he's talking to the Pharisees and he says this. Matthew 23, this is verse 23. So 23, 23. He says, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, your mint and dill and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but you swallow a camel. So, so what Jesus is saying to the Pharisees is, listen, you guys all tithe 10% like you're supposed to, but you're paying no attention to justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You're paying no attention to the things of this world that should draw your attention, the things of this world that draw God's attention. And so Jesus, and really the only time, he mentions it kind of one other time, but really the only time Jesus talks about tithing, he says, you guys are missing the point of tithing. You're doing it because you feel like you have to do it, not because you want to do it, and not because of God's justice and his faithfulness. So should we tithe? Yes. It is very clear. Jesus says we should be doing both things, be giving of a tithe and also practicing justice, mercy, and faithfulness right? So yes, I think we should be tithing. But more importantly, as Jesus says here, and I think as we see in the book of Acts here with this example, is that we should be thinking about the reason behind these things. We should be thinking about God's justice and God's mercy being displayed to our neighbor, right? We should not only give to the church because it's what we should do, but because this is the venue with which God helps people, where people come and hear about the grace of God and the love of Jesus. However, so Jesus doesn't talk a ton about tithing. And actually, the New Testament doesn't say a ton about tithing as far as like a rule for giving to the church. But you know what it talks a lot about? Giving and helping others and helping the poor. 
In fact, it's sort of hard to find a page on the New Testament where it doesn't talk about giving and helping others and loving others, right? We saw it in Acts chapter 2. We see it in Acts chapter 4 tonight. You know, one of the most famous passages that you may have heard is from or 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3, the apostle John, who, by the way, was there, right? He was just talking about Peter and John and the temple courts and how he healed this guy. So the same John, he says this. He says that this is how we know what love is. That Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. So what does scripture say to you and to me about giving? Well, the Old Testament law decrees a tenth. Jesus confirms this is a good idea, but does not say anything else about it, but rather focuses with his life and ministry on the needs of giving and helping other people. He talks about giving generously, constantly. And if we read the rest of the New Testament, we see these themes throughout John and Peter and Paul and all of the writings in the, Old or in the New Testament that we have. So, for you, for me, what is our rule? It's still not clear, right? Okay, so I'm supposed to give generously. What does that mean? Like, how much? Am I supposed to do it all, like in Acts chapter 4? Or can I give some and still keep some? Like, what do I do? You know, we had an absolutely beautiful week this week, didn't we? I mean, weather-wise, it was just so lovely. It was sort of sad to wake up Saturday morning to have it be really cold and windy again. But I remember sitting and I was studying this during the week and actually sitting in the sunshine and just sort of enjoying the patio and thinking, what does this passage mean for us? And the word that popped into my head was freedom. These people, these disciples, these apostles, even in the midst of uncertainty, their leaders have just been arrested. They're thinking, maybe we're going to be arrested. What's going to happen? They were unified and free to worship Christ. They were free to pray together, free to preach Christ boldly. And as we see, they felt free to give exactly as they felt led and exactly as anyone needed. See, this sort of unity we see here in Acts chapter 4, this sort of boldness can only come, I believe, with true freedom in Christ. Because freedom in Christ gives us the freedom to give. This is not about tithing rules, brothers and sisters. This is not about you need to give 10% every month or else. This is about being free to give from our hearts and to give from the joy we have in Christ. It is about dying to ourself and our desires and living a life for other people. Because see, in Christ, his life his death, his resurrection, and his ascension, we have been made free, right? We have been made free. So we are free to give a tenth every month of what we have, or we are free to give everything we have, if that's what we feel God is calling us to do. And still, to some people, freedom in Christ is not freedom at all. Because some of us, and I say us because I feel this way sometimes too, some of us would rather have the rule. Some of us would rather just have the, the marching order, you know, what, just, just tell me what I need to do, right? Sometimes I feel that way. Like, God, just tell me what I need to do and I'll do it, okay? Just tell me what it means that I can be in your good graces. Tell me what it means to just live within the rules so I know I'm safe. 
I don't know if any of you feel that way. I definitely do sometimes. Because if I'm, if we're honest with ourselves, being free is not always easy. But see, brothers and sisters, let me just encourage you here. When we want that rule, when we want that just clear guideline, just tell me what I need to do, that actually doesn't show wisdom. It doesn't show like maturity. It shows immaturity. Because when we just want a rule, when we just want guidelines, we, we're not seeking wisdom. We're not trying to follow our heart. We're just trying to hide behind that rule so that we can know exactly how far we can go, so that we can know exactly how much we can push this and still be in God's good graces. And when we feel like we would rather have the rule, it also reveals something inside of us. Think of that mindset. Okay, think of that mindset that says, okay, God, just tell me how much I need to give so that I'm safe. That's fear based. Or think of that mindset that says, God, just tell me how much I have to give so that I can get you off my back. Well, what does that say about our hearts and how we're thinking about God? That he's just waiting to be mad at us. He's just waiting to punish us. And we think in our minds, well, just tell me how much I have to give God so that I don't have to worry about that. Or give you another example, a practical example. Maybe you're driving here in Switzerland and you see one of those lovely flashes, you know, from the the little, you know, speed things on the side of the road because you're going five kilometers over the speed limit. Immediately you think, oh, how much is this going to cost me? You know, or you get a bill in the mail and you think, oh, I forgot about this one. How much is this one going to be? You know, how often do we have this mindset with God? Really be honest with yourself. How honest do you sometimes think of tithing and giving and think, okay, God, how much do I have to give? What is this Christian life going to cost me? What do I have to do? How much do I have to give to make myself feel better? How much of my stuff do I have to give? But what does that say about the way we think about our wealth and the way we think about our God? Do we sometimes think that we are tithing to get God off our backs? Do we sometimes think that we are tithing and giving to other people so that we can feel better about ourselves? So that we can then go, so, okay, I'm fairly wealthy, so you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to give 20% of my tithe, and then now God will be super happy with me, and I can go and do whatever I want with the other 80%. Is that why we tithe? Is that why we give? Be honest with yourself, because I'm going to be honest with you. I think this way sometimes. I think, okay, God, how much? How much do we have to give so that you're happy with our giving? Church, that is not freedom. That is bartering. That is making a deal with God so you can be free to do whatever you want, so you can feel better about yourself. But let me tell you, you don't need to feel better about yourself. Christ has made you free. You don't need to barter with God. God has made you free in Jesus Christ. Because first, what we need to remember is that to be a Christian is to give everything. It is to die to ourselves. So everything you have is God's anyways. Deuteronomy 8 says this, that all of what we have is from God. He is the one who gave us the power to gain wealth, and it's all his anyways. Secondly, so we need to realize everything is God's anyways, okay? Second thing we need to really realize is that once we give all to God and acknowledge this in our hearts, then we are free. What did Paul say to the Galatian church? Chapter five, verse one. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. 
Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Church, do not let yourselves be burdened by a yoke of money and how much I have to give or how much God will be happy with it. You are free. You are free to give a tenth. You are free to give everything you have. Because true freedom in Christ is freedom to give when people are in need. And to be what? free from money that tangles us. And to be free. Ooh, someone's dog. To be free from money that tangles us. To be free from all the junk of this world that holds us down. Freedom in Christ is really pretty simple, you guys. It is freedom to give what you have to give. And that's all God asks for us. Back in that passage I quoted in John, John says, Dear children, let us not love with words or with speech, but with actions and in truth. Let that be the way we think about giving. Don't be afraid that you're not giving enough. Don't be afraid that God's pleased with what you have or don't have. Give from your heart. Give from what God has given you. You're free. You're free from the burden of feeling like you're giving, not giving enough. You're free. You don't have to barter with God. And if we needed more proof of this, we have the communion table. And so tonight, what we're going to do is we're going to go right into a time of communion now as we think about these things. And so I'm going to say a prayer, and then we'll go ahead and have our time of communion. So if you need to grab those things, uh, you can do so uh, now. Would you pray with me? Let's pray.